0: You are listening to WIN-WIN, a podcast brought to you by WIN, women in innovation. In each episode, inspiring female innovators share stories of succeeding against the odds in a male-driven industry. Their experiences come from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and innovation departments in Fortune 500 companies. I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, brand strategy consultant and global marketing lead at Win. When I set out to do this whole podcasting thing 20 episodes ago, my biggest question was, how do I get the most powerful, smart, and impactful women in the innovation industry to share meaningful moments in a 30-minute podcast? I also tried to not stutter and embarrass myself, but that's a story for another day. I am beyond proud to end season one of the Win Win podcast interviewing Olivia Hawkins, who is the head of business consulting at Acceleration, an innovation consultancy with a heavy impact on technology and data. Olivia's 20 plus years of experience have brought her to continents like Europe, North America, Africa and the Middle East. In her role, she consults companies on technological transformation, data, and operations. She helps marketing leaders to define and sell their vision, navigate large scale transformation, and sustain the change in culture and behavior. And today, her biggest concern is around data and the role ethics play in the digital economy. While this has only become a topic of conversation in the recent years, Olivia completed her Master's of Science at Oxford University, specializing in ethical data use in the commercial environment and continues to create impact not only for her clients, but as she considers WPP's own data ethics principles, creating pragmatic guidelines for this mega-agency conglomerate's employees. A lesson Olivia and the other women on this podcast have taught me, and one which I hope to end this season with, is this notion of not knowing what you don't know. As a woman in innovation, I don't know what my career trajectory would have been as a man. As a white woman, I haven't experienced the racism and prejudice against my fellow black women and women of color as a whole. But that's what this podcast is really about. Sharing the points of views of others that can enable us to create changes in our own lives and industries so the futures that we design are those that account for the things we don't know about. So we turn to those that do. It has been a true honor to be the host of this show and to help the amazing women in innovation share their success and failure stories. Have no fear, season two is right around the corner like literally next week or so, and here's to one year closer to closing the gender gap and forging a future that paves the way for everyone to be a winner. Hi, Livia. Welcome to the Win Win podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we will get into all sorts of things about your career, but while your current role as head of business consulting at Acceleration is incredibly impressive, something from very early on in your career stands out. And that is the fact that between 1999 and 2002, you were a business systems analyst, meaning you worked in digital during the first dot-com boom.
1: I am that old, yes. (laughs) So could you please start by maybe explaining
0: what the dot-com boom was for those that may not know in a brief way, and then please go into what it was like to be in digital during that transformational time?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, So, the dot-com boom was pretty much the first time that businesses had seen the potential of the World Wide Web, and in particular, its potential for shopping, for commerce. And so, hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of startups were created that tried to get people shopping online. And a lot of us, when we were in that world, uh, weren't even shopping online ourselves, um, I do vividly remember sort of ordering my first book from Amazon and it was all very exciting. So it was, I mean, incredibly exciting. We were just working in a world that had never existed before. And I remember conversations with relatives where they'd say, well, this is never going to work. How are you going to get all the deliveries together? Uh, how are you going to persuade people to shop online? No one trusts it. I mean, it was really massively disrupting people's ways of thinking um and the organization or the company that i worked for was uh in the b2b space which was if um, believable even more conservative than the b2c space um so we were it was a bit of an uphill battle i won't lie we also were relatively late to the party so we were part of sort of the big funding rounds but the the bust was sort of uh sort of there within sort of six months of us launching. So I think we had sort of something like 10 million investment and we whittled that down to one pound by the end of three years, which as one colleague um, suggested was sort of an inverse MBA for all of us. So amazing experience. Um, But if we had any learning from it, we had many, many learnings from it, but probably we all were in there just a little bit too early for businesses. They just weren't quite ready to sort of do that online shopping, or at least the kind of the type that we were proposing. But I mean, amazing, absolutely amazing, really, really exciting to be in that world.
0: And then of course, now, if you ask somebody, and they say they work in a in a digital role, that essentially means all of us at this point. But yeah. at the time, that was very much not the norm. So did you fall into it?
1: Or was that something that you had a
0: sparked interest in all along?
1: So my colleagues will mock me now, but um, I had always had an interest in I suppose computers, it really was computers back in that day, it wasn't digital. Um, So even as a small kid, I was sort of doing BBC programming and things like that. But I mean, you know, pretty, pretty small scale stuff. Um, So I suppose that side of things had always been quite interesting. But then I went off, did a history degree did a bit of teaching abroad, you know, that kind of stuff, didn't really expect to get into digital at all, and certainly knew nothing about it. Um, So, in that classic way, I was chatting to some friends, desperate for a job, and somebody mentioned somebody who was looking for an office manager. So, I actually started as the office manager, and there were four of us, and then I kind of stumbled into the the systems analysis role. So, in the last five 10 or even 20 years,
0: we've seen the pace of innovation and the expectations around the pace of innovation continuously grow. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like moving fast in innovation is always a good thing?
1: I think that you can't control the pace. So I think it doesn't matter what I think about the pace of innovation. (laughs) I do think that over the course of the last 20 years, a lot of us have gone from Incredible optimism and enthusiasm about this whole new way of communicating and doing business to a certain feeling of sort of maybe just caution that things are not quite as wonderful as we anticipated. I mean, I think those sort of concerns are well-documented. We could talk about social media. We could talk about misinformation. We could talk about data privacy. There are all sorts of different issues. I think we've lost that heady optimism. And I sort of miss it, actually. I miss that feeling of being excited by the next new development and being excited by the next new gadget. It's still exciting, but that excitement is tempered by a kind of feeling of what did we unleash? What is this brave new world that we were involved in creating? But perhaps every generation feels that way.
0: Well, then you did mention kind of uh, data privacy. Specifically, I know you have a lot of opinions on that and you've discussed it in the past. But of course, working in the industry and in marketing functions, I'm sure you see the immense opportunity to make better products and better services using data. So where do you think that fine line exists between utilizing data to create innovations that move humanity forward versus encroaching on ethics? And could you give some examples, maybe both good or bad?
1: Sure. I mean, that's a huge question. (laughs) So examples, good and bad. I I think that we talk a lot in the marketing industry about improving customer experience and doing that through targeting our advertising more precisely. So only showing adverts to people who are likely to to engage with them, to be interested by them. And that's great because that kind of reduces the noise for all of us and we also talk about personalization, this idea of sort of tailoring the message or tailoring the kind of the, the image, the creative. Um, so it's it's more interesting and, and useful and relevant. But that improvement of customer experience, the kind of the flip side to that is that you are sort of reducing people's autonomy. You're reducing their free choice, if you like. Now, that's kind of an extreme position. The truth is somewhere in between those two. And realistically, the line between them is different for all of us. So what I consider to be acceptable personalization from perhaps a local store is different to what I think is acceptable from a brand for whom I have no sense of loyalty or interest. So I might find one type of personalization of kind of an infringement of my privacy, so, you know, why are they watching me? Why are they kind of targeting me? And I might find it absolutely acceptable and beneficial from a from a different brand. And so that's my personal reaction to it. And my personal reaction is going to be different to somebody else's personal reaction and to the next person's personal reaction. So for all of us in this industry, sort of like finding the the balance between greater or an improved customer experience, or a kind of infringement of privacy, it's incredibly difficult. And that's why everyone's sort of talking about this, this kind of concept of privacy and data ethics, but no one is able to come up with some hard and fast rules, because ethics is not kind of about rules. Well, there's a whole philosophical discussion there. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) you are now working on WPP's own data ethics principles and creating
1: pragmatic guidelines for employees. So then how are you specifically tackling this? Um, well, the key there is in, is in the, the word principles. So you can have principles which sort of say, well, you know, this is our value system. This is kind of what we think about these sorts of topics. So here's our position on accountability. We think that a human is always accountable for the way that we process data. Or here's our position on transparency. We like to be as transparent as possible um, about how we are collecting and processing data for our clients. Um, So we can have a sort of a value statement and a kind of a principle about the big questions. The guidelines are specifically guidelines, they're not rules. And they encourage our employees to stop and just think about what they're doing. So they don't say you must do this or you must do that. They say, if you are using data in this particular way, then have a stop, have a think, have a bit of a chat with your manager and the rest of the team have a think about the client and what they're going to be using the data for and how this data is going to impact the end consumer. And just think about whether what you're doing is is something you're comfortable with and the client will be comfortable with.
0: And outside of this, um, as we discussed, you're head of business consulting and at Acceleration. So what does a day in your life look like?
1: <laughs> busy. <laughs> but I'm sure everybody says that. Quite a lot of my time is on client work. And I work with lots of different clients across different industries. And we do consulting that sort of stretches from helping clients define Uh, sort of their marketing strategy and how they're going to sort of um, change the way they engage with customers through to sort of talking to them about their organization structure within marketing, process design, and so on and so forth. Um, We talk to them about data ethics, obviously, all sorts of things. And because we are, because Acceleration is a, a specialist in data and tech, Everything we do around that sort of business consulting is always referencing back to how you best exploit data and tech for marketing and for customer engagement.
0: How do you think that's changed in the last, uh, let's call it, year of uh, the COVID era?
1: That's interesting. Um, So Acceleration uh, is a global company and actually half my team is based in South Africa. So in a sense, not much has changed for us at all. We've always been a company that embraces remote working Um, and because we we worked so much on client sites, we weren't actually often a whole company in the office at the same time. So we're really used to video conferences and telephone calls and instant messaging and all that kind of stuff. We just do that naturally. So in many ways, the, the pandemic and working from home hasn't changed things too much. Where it's probably had the most noticeable impact is in our relationship with clients. Because instead of being able to kind of form face-to-face relationships and see the clients in their working environments, everything's been done online. I would say, however, that in some ways that brings you closer to the client because you are all having a kind of shared experience, no matter where you are in the world. And we're all seeing an awful lot of each other's houses and children and pets and kind of bookshelves. And we're getting insights into people's ways of living that we might not otherwise have. And I think that's particularly true for colleagues. So I think there is, I mean, setting aside the sheer awfulness of the pandemic, I think there is some upside for how we work and how we treat each other and how we interact that shared experience and that kind of determination to sort of cut people some slack because they've got childcare or they're kind of, you know, dealing with whatever it is, having to work out of the bedroom and not on a proper desk. I think people are just a little more accommodating and maybe a little kind of kinder to their colleagues. We should be anyway.
0: (laughs) That's a really beautiful way of looking at it. Um, I've seen some similar things, Um, but I did want to ask, you spoke about a shared experience. I think One experience that maybe is not so shared in your life is the fact that you are a woman and in this digital and especially Internet heavy world, maybe less now, but definitely 20 years ago. There may have been times that you were only in the room or times where it was much harder for you to ascend the ladder. So what's that experience been like for you?
1: Uh, Well, on that very specific, the only person in the room or the only woman in the room. um, Yeah, absolutely. That was the norm. I had my first all female meeting in South Africa in 2014. That was the first time I had, I think, been in a room with just females. Um, so absolutely, especially the first part of my career, it was completely normal to be the only female in the room. That completely normal to be the only female in the team. How has it impacted my career? I, I honestly don't know because this is a bit like history, isn't it? You kind of it's kind of the the argument of kind of counterfactuals in history. You you don't know what the alternative would have been. So I can't say how being a female has impacted my career or kind of limited my ability to kind of move up a ladder. I do think there's a kind of a whole heap of research that suggests it might have had an impact. I think that the most noticeable part of being a female in the working environment was in the sort of constant feedback of managers and even colleagues about the fact that I needed to change my behavior because I was a female, or my female colleagues needed to change their behavior. So, I've had numerous times in kind of formal performance assessments or even just kind of meetings where I've been told I mean, quite literally, I've been told to be more feminine, less feminine, more assertive, less assertive, <laughs> speak up, don't speak up so much don't be so bossy, try and lead more. I mean, by the age of 35, I didn't know who I was or what I was supposed to be doing. And I think it kind of got to that point and I was a bit like, you know what, stop the noise. I I just want to be myself. I'm not really sure who myself is anymore. But so I think that was definitely something that females get a lot of, that kind of constantly being told to be, to just be different. So how do you
0: find um, the fine line between really receiving feedback well, and then also shutting out the noise when you need to? What would you say uh, you would do?
1: Well, uh, yeah, don't do what I did, which was to take every single piece of feedback and try and adapt my behavior accordingly. (laughs) Because I was in such a muddle by the end of all that. I don't know, actually. I think, well, I think the good news is it doesn't happen as much now. I really don't. Really, that sort of feedback sort of stopped in my, yeah, definitely in my mid-30s. And I sort of didn't get it after that. So something changed societally, or kind of structurally to stop that happening i think it is always really useful to get feedback at work you know we do work in a corporate environment we're always going to have to kind of take some of the kind of rough edges off our personalities but i think never never forget who you are because if you try to be something that you are not you're going to be exhausted and frankly you're not going to do it very well and i still even today will go into meetings and will suddenly think oh god am i speaking too much am i not speaking enough instead of actually just Participating in the meeting, actually just listening and providing an opinion when it's relevant and shutting up when it's not. So be yourself. It's the best advice I can give. Absolutely. Um, as you've navigated and
0: continue to navigate your career, are there any resources that you turn to, whether that's in terms of gender or not, uh, things that help you stay on top of your job, people that help you stay on top of your job?
1: I think I have not done that as well as I could have. Lots and lots of people have said over the years. You know, you kind of go to conferences or you kind of read articles or things, and and people always say, "Oh, you know, get yourself a mentor. It really helps." And I never had the confidence to do that. And it wasn't actually until January this year that I finally, finally worked up the courage to find myself a mentor. And it it took me kind of several goes at the email before I press send. And they would just be laughing if they could hear that now. So I would say that has really helped because it's sort of Allowed, someone with a kind of bigger picture view and a kind of somebody who's not intimately involved in the particular problems or, or kind of in my particular career to take that kind of step back and give advice that I can't think of because I'm right in my career. Sure, um, but you have worked with so
0: many different brands and different companies. <laughs> uh, if you've learned something, what do you believe is the key for creating organizations that do innovate and make waves?
1: I think that organizations which are not too hierarchical are the ones that are the most creative. I've worked in organizations and I have consulted in organizations where there is really quite extreme hierarchy. Um and that's particularly true in some continents rather than others. I mean Europe is actually not too hierarchical compared to some of the other continents I've worked in or, or with. And that really sucks the life out of kind of creativity and innovation because people don't feel that they should speak up and they don't feel confident to speak up and they're kind of reluctant to to kind of challenge and I think that's a real shame you know there is a lot to be said for experience and there's a lot to be said for sort of seniority and I think I think when you were 20, it's kind of really easy to sort of think you know it all and, and kind of everyone past the age of 40 is kind of old and past it. And actually, they're not. They've got loads of experience that they're bringing to every conversation and every idea. But you also need that energy that comes from every layer in an organization and every kind of level of experience. And I think if you kind of trap that or if you dampen that down too much, then it harms the company's prospects.
0: So if you could go back to yourself as a young professional um, navigating life at that time, what's the what's the advice that
1: you would give yourself as a as a young professional, as a young woman? Have a little bit of patience, perhaps, but not too much. Be confident to be yourself. And then make a decision. And this was advice I got quite early on. Make a decision about whether you want to go for the top, you know, the CEO role, or whether you want a career that is more like a jungle gym where you are moving from interesting job to interesting job. And the reason I think that advice is really useful is that if you move from interesting job to interesting job and have a really cool career, doing lots of fascinating stuff and always kind of having the energy to go to work, but then kind of get to retirement age and say, "Mm, well, I was good enough to be CEO. Why was I never promoted? You know, you're just going to be disappointed. And yet to get to those sort of really senior positions takes absolute dedication and concentration and a kind of a ruthless sort of like -like, chess-like sort of approach to your career where you sort of, you know, I will do this job because it's going to give me commercial experience or I will do this job because I'll learn about kind of supply chains or whatever it is. You know, to to be CEO or in the C-suite or just, you know, super senior is a very different thing to having a career of interesting, varied jobs, which are probably never more than kind of middle management. And you need to make that decision pretty early on, because if you want to get on that CEO track, you've got to get on it and not, not mess around. And I'm really glad somebody gave me that advice, because actually I kind of went with the interesting jobs. It just suits my personality more. And I haven't regretted that for a second, not for a second. Incredible. So before I
0: let you go, i really love to ask an innovation question that we ask all of our guests. So where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now,
1: one year from now, and 10 years from now? Okay, I'm going to ask, I'm going to answer for the industry. One month from now, I think still battling through COVID, obviously, and still doing an incredible job supporting our clients. <laughs> one year from now, really getting to grip of, or, or kind of embracing the, the change to data collection that comes with the demise of cookies. So that's, you know coming down the road really fast. And we're, we're, we're kind of getting super prepared for that. But it is going to be a huge change in the marketing industry. And I am not sure that all of our clients have quite kind of grasped the nature of this change, or how it's going to affect how it's going to affect the way they market. And therefore, that's something that we'll be spending an awful lot of time on this coming year. Um, 10 years, who knows, we're going to be dealing with massive volumes of data on a scale that we have not really kind of got to grips with at all, because everything is going to be connected and everything is generating data. I think that the twin issues of that kind of responsible use of data, that ethical use of data and the impact on privacy, so issue number one, and then the second issue of the impact of all this data use on the environment, I think those two concerns, which are sort of just gaining traction now are going to be absolutely core to what we do and how we behave.
0: Could you extrapolate on the uh, impact of data on the environment? Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but data use comes at a cost and it is cost that is not well understood or measured at the moment. I believe that there is no common standard at the moment for sort of assessing data use. And I know there are various initiatives sort of being launched to tackle this, but all that data that we are creating as we stream netflix or i don't know um, upload our images or kind of chat on social media whatever it is we're doing boiling our kettle in the future all of that data needs to be processed stored managed and that's all eating up an enormous amount of energy at the moment so that i think is a a rising issue or a growing issue and then
0: about yourself in one month from now uh, one year from now and 10 years from now uh
1: well Having said that I took the jungle gym route to my career, I can say quite confidently that I don't have a clue um, what I'm going to be doing in um, one year or ten years I very much hope that in one year I will still be part of the kind of WPP network and doing work there but what that job will be who knows i don't I, I don't know I would love to do more in the data ethics space that is something that I think is hugely important. But I also really love working with clients. I mean, I actually really enjoy that part of my job, thankfully, because it's most of my job. So who knows?
0: I love that. Well, we'll all be around to find out, hopefully.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll keep you posted.
0: <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today for the Win Win podcast. It was a real pleasure speaking to you, Olivia.
1: My pleasure, too. You. Thank you for
0: having me. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by WIN, women in innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozikov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.